The Canby Report is recorded and produced on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. After 73 episodes, the Camby Report in its current incarnation is coming to an end. Long live the Camby Report. This is the Camby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. And for the very last time... I'm Patrick Meehan. Unless you come back, you know, hopefully after the NDP lose the next election, buzzing. Please go to cambyreport.ca slash survey. Patrick, where are you going? Uh, yeah, so I've accepted a job with the BC government that I'll be taking on in a couple of weeks. And as part of that job and that role, I'm no longer allowed to speak politically uh, on the internet or in public, mostly because in the role that I take on, you know, I'm a servant of the government and my, my speech should not be mistaken for that of the government when I do take on the role. Free speech is dead. The NDP has killed it. <laughs> uh, this is true of any government. Uh, but no, I'm really excited for the opportunity. It should be, it's a really great move for me. And I'm uh, just terribly sad to be leaving the Canby Report. And we are very sad to see you go. But that's not merely half of my sadness. In fact, the depths of my sadness this week have been difficult to plumb. Man, that hospice vote. I am so sad. It's not even a hospice vote. It's a rezoning vote on a property that's next to a hospice. Patrick, why don't you give us a factual rundown with no opinions? Uh, I can definitely do that. So there's a mansion district zoning that exists in Vancouver. There's a few different iterations of them. But this particular mansion zoning allows for 12,000 square foot mansions to be built. Single family houses that are 12,000 square feet. As a comparison, uh, 4,100 square feet is the maximum cap on a single family house in the rest of Vancouver's residential zoning. So you're looking at three times the square footage of what is already a very large house maximum. We're sitting in your condo here, which is probably 300 square feet? 625. Okay. (laughs) I'm not that... It's not that small. <laughs> There's just a lot of stuff around. Yeah. All right. And so this RS zoning uh, is also uh, able to be applied for under the, the Rental 100 program, which we've talked about extensively. So the owners and current occupiers of the, the building that is on the site want to redevelop. And so they apparently, uh, according to one interview that they did, in the early 2010s, they did a mansion plan. And then the kids talked, like their, their adult children, talked their parents into switching it up for a redevelopment into a Rental 100 application which would be a three and a half story building and a two and a half story building for a total of 21 units. Two of the units would be taken up by uh, the, the current occupiers of the house, which is to say the parents would take one and the kids would take another. And these would be rental townhomes that would in be perpetuity put on the market. In perpetuity and 60 years, yeah, townhouses. Uh, and this is at about 30th and Granville. So an increase in density that seems... So a few other points should be made is that originally the, the project came with, I believe it was 18 parking units or somewhere in that vicinity. And after consultation with the community, the developer upped that number to, I think, 36 parking stalls. So significantly more than the number of units because the community had a concern about increased traffic. And so they did increase that. It would also significantly increase the extent of construction, which became a bit of a point of contention at council. It sits across or next to a hospice, uh, which itself is on gravel as well. 
And that hospice board came out opposed to the development on the fear that for two things, one that uh, the it could obstruct the view from the dining hall, which the developer adjusted the project so that it wouldn't obstruct the view of the dining hall, uh, but also that the construction noise would be uh, disruptive to the, 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 the workings and the mechanics of the hospice and the people that are in the hospice would be suffering because of that noise. Uh, and then lastly, uh, a number of people came forward in the community and said that the hedgerows that line the property and, you know, as you know, Granville Street is lined with hedgerows are an iconic part of Vancouver and should be maintained. And that was another component that was raised uh, that also I think some councillors really seemed to appreciate. Those hedgerows are doomed. Well, it's, it is probably true that in any const- any sizable construction, you're going to have to have some de- some destruction of those hedgerows for the, the construction machinery to come in and out. And guess what's happening? Well, without even, reason. Even before we even get to that, the hospice's argument, I, I read some of their later submissions leading up to this final vote, and they it seemed to reach the hyperbolic level, and this is my language, that if this construction goes through, if this townhome project goes through, they will be closed like they will not be able to persist and it was if this townhome happens we will have to close we will be gone and we will lose one of vancouver's only hospices one of vancouver's only assisted dying friendly hospices as well and i i just could never personally understand the argument how construction next door forces this closure oh yeah but it's only this construction because of course the construction that the hospice wanted to do the hospice that the executive director of said we want to buy the land next door to us the one that this multi-unit development was going to happen on and build a multi-unit development on that was somehow going to be quiet and dust free you know because magic like i i'm just so filled with rage and unspeakable sadness because like it actually really is so demoralizing the idea that we can't get anything like this done because the forces of NIMBYism are so strong and so powerful and can just leverage the, the intense like conservatism and conservationism and, and just opposition to any type of difference of person, of neighbor to like stop any kind of positive change from happening in the city. It's awful. Uh, obviously, I, I cannot comment uh, on on that, uh, although very impassioned speech. There, there was one other component that should be sort of mentioned as well is that, and this one sort of really I think impacted Councillor Swanson's vote in particular is the developer opted not to take the the development wa- the development cost levy waiver, which would have capped their rent at a certain amount. These would have been quite large apartments. They're townhouses. They're they're, they're significantly larger than a normal one bedroom, and so they weren't going to go with that. And so uh, it did come out that they were going to be rented at about $3,700 per apartment per month. For like some three-bedroom apartment. For a three-bedroom apartment, yeah. And so that, I think, also played a role in some of the the opinions that were drawn about this. Like, I have largely written off anything positive coming out of Colleen Hardwick. Like, we are not on the same side of this political issue, and so I assume that, you know, her votes are going to be in opposition to what I would hope on anything. Gene Swanson is like this bright shining Nova that has collapsed into a black hole. God forbid anything get built that isn't specifically supportive housing or social housing. It isn't perfect. And man, like she is leading the charge 
like mounted on her war bear against the good because it is not perfect. It's so, so frustrating. And so like those two unholy alliance members combined with like whatever smattering of, you know, presumably Adrian Carr, who has been very, very conservationist in her, her votes up until now, make it very difficult to, to pass things when, you know, that those three votes are almost what you need to block a development. And, like, it, it makes me want to single particularly Pete Fry and Michael Weeb out as being, a, like, a, an especial disappointment, especially Michael Weeb, who I had, like, very high hopes for, and whose actual speech during the thing made me recall the 2016 election where it looked like everything was going to be grand and a grand new universe was going to thing, and then everything just collapsed into a horrible pile of rubble. Except no, no rubble, because nothing changes. We've seen Cope go, like you're saying, Matthew, they can't accept a mediocre or a good project in favor of a perfect project. And I I get the this wasn't affordable argument. Like, you can say it doesn't advance affordability in Vancouver, but I almost don't... I disagree. Like, well, but... no, but hear it out. I mean, so what, even? So what that it doesn't advance affordability realistically, in, your, in their opinion? It at least tears down a mansion and splits what would be one family's home into more than one. And that feels better to me. And so... We've seen on Twitter the Cope Housing Committee has like reactivated this set quietish account at Housing Cope to just start making some like ill form, like not fully weird tweets. They don't use full words, they condense things. You can still figure out what they mean, but it's very idiosyncratic and just going after project after project of like this isn't perfect, therefore it's a hairbringer of like developers destroying the city. And it's like they're complaining about even the Denny's conversion. It's really like the hieroglyphs of Cope, you know, because all their housing policies were set in like ancient Egypt. Like it's, it's so, it's just crushingly, it's crushingly disappointing. And, and I, I don't really see a way out for the city. It's doomed now. So there's a few other things, you know, and this, as I said at the very beginning, this is zoned to allow for this mansion zoning. I'm, I'm not making a statement that like it's literally, man, it's called mansion zoning. And so the developer now has the option to do this 12,000 square foot mansion, which they've said they're going to go through with. Uh, they said that, you know, instead of building the these 21 townhouse units, they're going to build instead the one single family mansion. Uh, and as sort of Ian, as you said, that is sort of a component of this is that 21 units is different than one and you know you're breaking that up but i think to add into it as well is the the system is very hard so the developer paid fifty thousand dollars just to apply for the 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 rezoning process and then add in all of the other costs for uh going about uh developing the design work and 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 then holding a number of town halls for the community and whatnot and so it's it's quite an expensive and arduous process and it takes quite a long time this kind of a program process takes you know a year to three years uh to get to the point of getting shovels in the ground and getting your approval and that's that's hard and so some of the counselors did say that they really hoped that the project would come back to them you know different you short 
excited nincompoops. Let me let me let me sort of finish this thought in sort of a as as couched as a way as I can is that's a hard proposition. You know, they've already gone through three years of this process now, I think it is. And, you know, for any developer, that's really hard. And I, the, the reason why I want to bring this up more than anything else is it's the difficulty in the process. And so Pete Fry, uh, specifically Councillor Fry, specifically wanted to reduce the amount of parking to reduce the impact of the construction. And he asked and staff said that it would be not lawful, essentially, in that phase of the hearing process to meaningfully and significantly amend the, the project as it exists. And so the, the person would have to withdraw and bring back forward a new a new uh, brand new again and that is a, a process issue as well as a, a policy issue as well as a overarching issue with whether or not the developer is going to bring it back at all well and this is one thing that kind of came up during the election is the red tape argument this is what ken sim talked to us a lot about and even kennedy stewart kind of talked about but i don't know if he's talked as much since because red tape is a sexy cons- you know center right election issue no one cares about it while you're governing. Red tape is sexy anytime. So instead of 21 rental townhomes, we're going to get one mega mansion. So congratulations, Jean Swanson. You built a mansion. Which, which, if she had her way, we would be taxing. Yeah, but she's not getting her way. I think a lot of councillors are going to call this the hardest vote they've cast, whether or not they voted in a way that you support or not. I don't think any councillor, except for possibly Councillor Hardwick, was particularly happy with the vote they ended up casting. Uh, I think everybody saw a difficulty in it and that the speeches were quite overwrought uh, about it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. Well, and you saw that even on those who are in favor. Uh, Christine Boyle posted a long message to Facebook talking about how tough it was for her to you know, hear from the hospice people. And as a United Church minister, she's helped people die and been there for those important moments. And so she gets that point of view. Or she also ran on this platform of densifying the city and making it more affordable through density. It raises an interesting hypothetical as if, like, Hector Bremner and a couple of Yes Vancouver people had gotten elected to council and this weird alliance of, like, one city and Yes Vancouver was fighting on, like, basically everything except for this one singular issue. It would be a very different discourse. And, like, the wildcard green vote that manages to consistently disappoint is, is really just disheartening. That said... Being disappointed is no excuse to be an asshole. Tick, tick, tick. I'm turning my guns to the side and, you know, blasting back into the crowd from whence I came. Although, you know, I will be pointing out that I have not ever been a member of Abundant Housing Vancouver. But, like, stop being jerks. Like, I understand the tactics that... Uh, Abundant Housing Vancouver has been using, and I, I actually support the form letter, and I think it was effective, but I think the reaction, particularly on Twitter afterwards, has been very, very counterproductive, and I have gotten messages from people calling, like, not only... Abundant housing, but me for some reason and the other members of the Canby report, psychopaths. And that was interesting. And so, like, don't be so mean. Don't be jerks. I, I just wanna, like, I know a lot of people listen to this from Abundant Housing, and like I, I think that there is a a siege mentality that takes shape 
when you lose a particularly important vote or battle like this. Like, you, you go to ground and you think, everyone is the enemy and so I must kill them. And, like, pulling out the vitriol and hugging sulfuric acid at anyone who disagrees is very, very counterproductive because it, it means that the people you need as allies on the next vote are not being given constructive criticism. Like, I am disappointed in Michael, and I am disappointed in Pete Fry, and I am disappointed in Rebecca Bly, but I am not against them. I still think that they are broadly good counselors and I think that they are still broadly thoughtful and I just think that they got worn down by the debate and managed to somehow back their way into voting for a mansion that will obstruct the sitting area view and not the actual thoughtfully constructed proposal that was brought before them. The Twitter debate around individual housing projects in Vancouver has been so toxic for so long. And it's something that I've seen so many times, like, and it's partially something that I want to get to in that is our, and a lot of people are also asking this, you know, is our entire approach to spot rezoning just a terrible way to do redevelopment? Yes. I knew you were going to say that, and I agree. But the, the like, obsessive nature that pro-supply crew will grab onto an issue, which motivates the NIMBY crowd or vice versa, and you suddenly have halt and... AHV screaming at each other on Twitter. And it's not an issue of like, you know, you ask for a little nuance. It's Twitter is a terrible medium. It's a terrible website. It's full of Nazis and it just encourages us all to scream at each other. And I've just not found any of this discourse to be helpful. I questioned before the podcast, did AHV's intervention in this project actually harm its chances? And I think we all agree it probably didn't. But there is that question of like, does your rhetoric and cite the other side to get more organized. And HV is definitely, I hope, going to ask themselves that and think about it. But I also know, you know, we get flack from the Holt people, and we've never been interested in really talking to them because they just scream racist at us because I called pro-Vancouver the troll party once because they act like a bunch of internet trolls. But apparently that is racist because that's demeaning them as subhuman it's exhausting yeah by the way hv just like so you know i give you this constructive criticism because i love you and agree with you. i, I, I really want to see your non-constructive criticism <laughs> <laughs> that's when i hold the mic away from my mouth uh, that could be a patreon benefit <laughs> in the future where we just <laughs> shit post on every one of our friends and non-friends and just people <laughs> who listen but like i patreon.com slash canby report we haven't mentioned it yet <laughs> you beat me to it but patreon.com slash canby report patreon.com slash canby report hv i don't give constructive criticism to halt or really try to mention them at all because i want to try and like basically let them stew in their own cauldron of hatred and because I think that their tactics, which you seem to be adopting, talking directly to HV at this moment, stop descending to the level of the people who are like, Vancouver is exploding and everyone's a racist who hates all the things that I love and disagrees with me in any way. And I think we all agree, everyone is racist. Yeah, everyone is racist. But like, how are we racist? 
Like, that level of constructive thought is not something that Halt has typically engaged in on their Twitter stream. So, anyway, Halt, continue doing exactly what you're doing. You're really doing a bang-up job. AHV, be better. Yeah, that's a, that's a pull quote that I'm going to love. Let's come back to this thought about how can we do planning better in this city? Because not we, are, we are also, and it's not being talked about, but in the midst of a city planning process. In theory, at some point in the next few years, we are going to either have a city plan or we'll all have a lot more reasons to hate each other if you listen to the prognostications of Gord Price, which... He has experience at this. He's probably not fully wrong. Is the city plan going to be successful? Nope. Is it worth doing anyway? Yep. I'm just like, I'm so deflated from this process. I'm so deflated. I'm so upset. And I really think that everyone has won themselves at the very most a Pyrrhic victory. And at the very least, the Battle of Cannae. Like, don't... Let yourself get completely surrounded and turned into a meat grinder. This That turned out fine for the Romans, though. No. Can I... They still won the war. Can I do it? I can out-historical yes, can. you. No, you can't. And but... this is why we'll miss you. <laughs> Let me give... Can I do it? Yes, they oh. can't. What I'm optimistic about the city planning process... I'm glad that someone can still experience of. optimism. So anytime you poll you know, the municipalities... Mario did this recently for Research Co., Burnaby just had a housing task force where randomly selected citizens were put together with some activists and they sort of brainstormed some suggestions. People support a denser city. They don't support a denser street that they live on, but they like the idea that more people need to live here, so we should increase the density. The city plan allows you to hope at its best can pull you out of that, I'm only looking at myself and my neighbor. Two, I'm starting to think about what my community should be. I'm still hopeful we can get there. I don't know what's happening. And we that, that's out. the point that I was at a little while ago. I'm like, this is this is what we can use. This is what, like, you know, the old good Erdogan was like, yeah, we need to, like, get rid of the death penalty and be better at, you know, human rights so we can be part of the European Union. And then France fucked everything up. The city plan is the Erdogan of local politics. No, the city plan is the European Union of local politics. Oh. So who are the Walloons? Colleen Hardwick? <laughs> I'm not I'm not exactly sure, but like Sarkozy is is definitely halt. This metaphor is in very serious danger of overextending itself. But <laughs> yes, danger of overextending itself. I, I will say the, the the sort of risk of sort of where I, I my position is, but I think there's two different avenues to this idea and there are things that have worked and there are things that haven't worked in the past and i think you know if you if you look at say the norquay or the the marpole redevelopment plans and marpole was particularly controversial norquay really wasn't and that is one way of doing this it can really work and the question is what are the other ways of doing it and the the citywide plan may not be the way to do it successfully and i don't know we'll see how it goes but there are ways to get area plans that are you know good and we're we're going to be the city is going to have to struggle with that now with jericho and heather and they've already undertaken it with with Oak Ridge. Well, and th th this is one of the things that I like actually found really 
inspiring about Michael Weeb's candidacy is that he kind of was trying to bridge the gap between a bunch of area plans and an interconnected city plan. And I think he had a good idea of why those two things needed to be connected because of like the broader implications of like sewerage and traffic that were going to, you know, the, f- the gross flow problems. Uh, <laughs> That, that needed to be managed that couldn't necessarily be well addressed with a bunch of inter, uh, like unconnected area plans. But if we keep rezoning spot by spot by spot, eventually we're going to have a city version of smallpox. Well, and I think this is where the rhetoric for me has gotten like I so frustrating. Is it the fever? Well, yeah, because the fact is, Lots of developments are still going up in Vancouver, and they're happening, as Patrick talked about, with some of those local areas. Camby Corridor has been rezoned. Broadway will go through that soon. But that's block re- Yeah, and that allows redevelopments. So we are getting there. Either maybe the city plan will accelerate it as a whole city. Maybe, you know, these area plans help get us there at a different to, way. To give you some context on the area plans, right? You've got the ones that exist now are the Canby Corridor area. You have the Marpole Rezone, which I believe starts at, I think, 57 and runs through a large swath of that South Vancouver area. Uh, you've got the Norquay Community Plan, which is fairly small post size. Then you add in the Broadway area plan, Broadway area plan which is going to run from Broadway Commercial to you know Broadway Arbutus. And five block either side. You're starting to get to a point where you're getting to like, you know, 15, 20% of the city is ensconced in the areas. So there is a question there. And I think, Ian, you raise a good point. So we've been doing this for a year and four months. You looked it up. It was March. March 17th, 2017, 2018, uh, with our first episode where we, where I got to go through a lightning round of Vancouver's political history. And I still really recommend people go back and listen to that one. It was a really fun one to do. We don't have a lot of evergreen content, but episode one. Episode one, yeah. It's a good one. It's This has been a really weird you know, year and a bit, eh? Like, none of us thought we would blow up the way we did during the election. None of us thought that we would get to do such cool work. I didn't think at any point that I would have elected officials sending me DMs to give me information on things uh, to give further no. context. I, I'm not going to tell stories outside of school. Uh, it's not just one. It's it's quite a few because we, we got active. We got out there and there's a hunger for this content and it's fascinating to me. And it's really, really sad that I have to step away from it. And ho- I'm really excited to come back when I'm done You know my time. But uh, this has been like a wild year, eh? It's the second podcast that I've started where within three weeks or less of starting it, it's been accused of being a front or a shill for some hidden interest, usually some different political party. Ah, oh, man. If only we were. Well, we've been... We'd have more money. We've been accused, I know. We've been accused of various Patreon.com slash Camby Report. And we've been accused of all sorts of various biases over the last year. Uh, and I remember, I remember I went to Cope's campaign launch. And they were talking about uh, the political views of the different members of the podcast. And they said, well, you know, Matthew's obviously on the right and Ian's, you know, on the left. And Patrick, you're the you're the sort of the moderate center right center left guy. And I was like, sure. And, you know, the audience can listen to that. And some some members of the audience, I'm sure, are saying, yeah, that's exactly how it is. And I'm sure some are saying, what what was wrong with Cope? (laughs) I also have gotten. Why don't you have any right wing people on your podcast? I mean, we have never been favorable to Wei Young. True enough. And she did get more votes than Bremner. Salt. Salt in the wounds. The first live show we had a $500 minimum sell, I think. 
uh, at the location, and we were really nervous. And then we had, I think, 50 people there. That was the Emerald, and we, yeah, overfilled the venue. Oh, yeah, a absolutely stunning moment. Uh, and then getting to do that month in, month out in the lead up to the election was just absolutely fantastic. Uh, and, you know, not only that, but I think we've all made new friends along the way that we actually just became really good friends of ours through the podcast because they listened to our show and we got chatting with them about, you know, some hockey or something like that on the Slack channel. We've had so many great guests. For, and from very early on, mm -hmm. we had Francis Beulah on the show on like our third episode, which was fantastic because she's the institution of Grand journalism. Dam of the Vancouver Press Corps. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it just the and the random people that would come out of the woodwork. You know, I can't go to a party with friends of mine without somebody saying, "Oh, by the way, my so and so friend listens to you, and or my coworker listens to you, and they really love your podcast." I can't like it's like I it, it's this sort of stunning thing. We don't have like a crazy high number of listeners. Although for those of you listening right now, if you want to share the podcast, that's more than happy if you did that. But you know, it's we do have you know just shy of a thousand listeners, and that's a pretty stunning thing to be able to say. And the fact that people are so engaged and so interested and, like, passionate about this city and this region and what it is and what it might become has become, like, a real enervating and motivating force in my life. And, and I really want to thank everyone who has contributed their time, their money, their talent, their insight into this podcast and and the ancillary projects that we've been able to branch off of it because it has become so much more than just a you know a little radio show it has become uh you know i think uh, hopefully a force for positive change and i think that that could not be possible it was just the three of us doing it it's something that our listeners have done uh, of their own accord in reaction to this, and I, I, I could not be more thankful. Well, and it's been so powerful that, because I've been doing Politicos for a couple of years before we started this, and... Oh, God, it has been a couple of years. Politico, started Politicos yeah, in... It's, all, it's coming up on three years. Yeah. And there, we talk about provincial and federal politics, and it's hard to talk to those politicians. They all have to schedule you far in advance. They don't live in Vancouver. If they, yeah, if you can talk to them at all. And when you do talk to them, it's all just talking points and it's boring. Mm -hmm. Everyone at the municipal scene is pretty accessible. Other than some of the mayors are a little bit hard. It took us a while. We got an interview with Gregor, though, that ended up being 15 minutes on the, his way out the door. But that was still cool. And mm -hmm. during the campaign, we talked to... All the major candidates. Pretty much all the major yep. candidates, except Wei Young, who we, we did try. All the major candidates. No, it's And, and, and you're right, the, you know people that are elected have been really great and have been really wonderful and receptive to us and I, for the for all, pretty universally I, I i remember the first time i went to council after the election to to cover it cuz I, I i've gone to council a handful of times and as i was sitting there uh you know the council breaks and councilor dominato just walked over to say hi and to see who i was was this when we were sitting at the media desk at uh, the front no row? this was the next time i went we still um, owe her an interview by the way yes yeah uh and but like she just came over and said hi and that was really fa fa fascinating and like just wonderful and also a big shout out to all the municipal journalists which is like real municipal journalists yeah. like the real people yeah we're yeah. amateurs at this at best yeah. and you know the justin mcelroy dan famano francis bula we already mentioned brent richter on the north shore jen st dennis Jen St. Coven Dennis. Coven Golly. 
Calvin Gawley yeah, over in Burnaby. Yeah, phenomenal, and, and and more that no doubt we're we're forgetting. But you know, all of them have been just so fantastic. Uh, when I went to council that one time, uh, I went for coffee with uh, with Dan Fumano uh, from the Sun before council, and he basically just walked me through how to do what I want, what I what we do. And so, like you know, this is you know when we go in, this is how you do it. And they've all been really wonderful. And then there's also the nonprofits. I mean, SFU Public Square has been super open to us. The city of Vancouver, I'm talking to right now about lining up interviews with nonpartisan city staff about a series of interviews about what the city is doing on just different issues. TransLink is super interested in talking to us more. Shauna Sylvester has reached out to us and and gotten us involved. uh, At least I've been involved in some of the future city planning stuff that she has been up to at the the SFU Center for Dialogue. And uh, like, there's this whole world of incredibly kind, incredibly interested, incredibly well-informed and well-intentioned people that we've become involved in and are incredibly privileged and, and thankful for, for being so. Like, it, it's just amazing. Yeah, it's very easy to get caught up in the day-to-day drama and the partisanship and all of that. But for the most part, everyone we've dealt with is super nice and really nice to us and really encouraging. Mm-hmm. And thank you. Yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice moment. You know, it sucks. It sucks that I'm leaving, and I don't, I don't, you know, I, if yes, I could it does. find a way, if I could find a way to make it work, but uh, it, it's a nice touching point for us too. I think where all three of us can stop and reflect a little bit. Join in the podcast like, soon. Will be Matt Peahan <laughs> with the altered voice. Well, and you know, I'm going to keep listening, and I'm going to, I'm going to expect you guys to keep this quality up, right? And I know that we're all reaching out and trying to find more guests to come on, not necessarily to replace me, but you know, for. You are irreplaceable. For ongoing content purposes. Uh, but I mean, I, I don't know anywhere that would put up with me talking about the weird vagaries of Vancouver political history more like, like anywhere at all. And here seems to have let me sort of talk about these random factoids for on and on. I mean, that's entirely what the Vancouver Auto segment was created to do was, I like those stories. I know a couple of them and I found a couple via Googling but you just have bookshelves behind me of them, and you know them by memory. Like L.D. Taylor. I'm looking at uh, the biography that I picked up a couple years ago on him. Fantastic biography. L.D. Taylor would wear a red power tie all the time. That was his image. Weird when it came out of the shower. <laughs> but yeah, longest serving mayor in Vancouver's history, uh, other than I think Gregor just narrowly beats him. L.D. Taylor was out of office and then back in office a few times. But he, he would wear a red power tie Almost like some other guy, but he was, you know, a, a, an interesting mayor who told the police to stop cracking down on prostitution in in Hogan's Alley and other areas where it was because he said vice is not going to cause victims. Allow it over there, and you know why would you crack down on that? It, it, this is like the 1930s. A red tide district. It's no good. But uh, <laughs> uh, but like like all of this like history is just fascinating that I get to bring it in and talk about it. You know, I I've never been able to talk about Art Phillips or Tom Terrific anywhere near as much as I have over the last year, and it's been fantastic. Well, which was another guy who ran for mayor of, under the NPA banner in the 1980s was Vanderzam himself. Came over and fantastic. Uh, didn't manage to make it, but uh, did run. I think he's in the late 70s. Well, Patrick, since you are appearing for the last time for the foreseeable future with us on this illustrious podcast why don't we let you have the last word last word or words i'm i'm really hoping that it's gonna be patreon.com slash canby report but uh, oh my god <laughs> hey uh, no no but last, last if, if he's not a host he can be a patron it's true i gotta stay on the slack channel somehow no it's yeah last word i guess for me is just and you know matthew you you went on a, a pretty big 
tirade earlier about people being negative on the internet around Vancouver politics. And I think the one thing that's really stunning to me is that with a few minor exceptions, the the, the Cambria Report listener base and crowd uh, and uh, community has been stunningly welcoming and really positive. And the community we've built has really managed to be exactly what you said you want out of discourse. And I, I'm just so happy with that. Good night. <laughs>